0: This is Jordan Van Trump of Farm Tank. Farm Tank is an organization I formed for individuals and business owners to learn the latest in innovation, execution, and motivation. I believe there's a huge demand for hearing how others have become successful in life. I'll be traveling the world talking to some of the most influential CEOs and founders to help everyone learn and be more successful in their near future. The agricultural community has been extremely grateful to me and my family, so I'd like to do the same for everyone else and share my insights with you. With that, coming to you live with Farm Tank, Jordan Van Trump. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Farm Tank. It's just me, Jordan Van Trump, on here today, and I have the pleasure of hosting Cody Sanchez. Um, we've tried to connect a few times over the past month, but I guess you guys are all going to get to sit in on our first time connecting. Um, so I give an intro for most everybody else, but uh, I think I'm just going to leave it to you, Cody, to uh, introduce yourself here to the people it seems like you got a lot of things going on got your hands in a lot of things you run a uh, cannabis fund you got that weekly newsletter that's extremely popular it looks like you sit on a few boards so uh i guess with that i'll just let you kind of introduce what you do now sure
1: so um yeah so i've I've sat on and um invested in and been a partner in a slew of different private equity and alternative funds um in the cannabis space in latin america and uh, and the funds that I recently um have been building out after investing in the space personally for. Years now is the small and medium business space. So that's how I think we kind of got connected. As I was look, I'm always looking for different asset classes that can cash flow. And so I started analyzing what is the what does the farm space look like, and is there a small business here that makes sense that's relatively hands off. Uh, and you can have operators in that, that come in and, and manage. Um, so at Contrarian Thinking, which is our newsletter that goes out to 100,000 people each week, we talk about an idea for how to cash flow and how to think differently, how to think critically. Because we sort of believe if you can have financial freedom, then you can also have philosophical freedom, the ability to think what you truly want, uh, and to be your own person. And so those are the two things we are trying to achieve. And we have you know, a couple groups and uh, events where we bring people together to get them different ways to passive income and cash flow unconventionally. So those are the biggest things I'm focused on right now. Our cannabis fund was about $200 million. The Latin America business I ran was a couple billion. And then um, now we run Contrarian Capital, which is a fund and a series of syndicates that invest in small and medium businesses. uh, And that one's in the tens of millions.
0: Cool. Cool. So do you do do a lot with the Cannabis Fund now, or mainly just contrarian So I still
1: sit, yeah, I still sit on the board of the Cannabis Fund. um, And we have, you know, 68 investments in the space, so I have a lot of exposure to cannabis. Um, So Mm. it's definitely still something that I do, but it's not something I actively invest in as much now. The industry's matured. We've done pretty well in that space to date. Um, and so we're continuing to look at deals in the space, but um, it's not where my biggest area of focus is right now.
0: Cool, cool. So I guess let's uh, yeah. Let's start with uh, let's start with your background. Let's take it way back when to uh, where you grew up, high school, first real job. I guess first startup, maybe you worked with.
1: Yeah. Um, oh, high school, first job. I think the first job I had was I. Um, I created a little book stall. Uh, the only problem was all the books that I was selling on the street, I hadn't gotten quite permission from my parents to sell them. So, um, so I had a little underground operation, started early. Um, but I think I always had that entrepreneurial bent. And then took that through a series of jobs in finance and Wall Street and the whole you know, nine yards. Um, and basically – sort of got at last to this idea that I'm always looking for the next area of arbitrage. I call it the next emerging market. And so basically that kind of just means where is there a disconnect between what most people think and what the numbers say? And so when I was in Latin America, it was like people thought the region was really dangerous. They didn't want to enter into that region. They didn't want to build a business there. But the numbers showed this massive population growing and this huge uh, pension fund system because they have mandated pensions. So no matter where you work in Latin America, most countries, you have to give 10% of your income to a state-run pension. And so there was you know, billions and billions of dollars in captive assets. Um, so I built up that business because I saw this disconnect. And then with cannabis, I saw the same thing, massive stigma, lots of concern about the area, and um, big institutions weren't willing to invest, but the numbers showed you know, double-digit year-over-year growth. I was like, wait a second, there's a there's a business here too. Um, and then with small and medium businesses today, I you know during the pandemic when everything was getting shut down, I thought, wait a second, how do we have Walmart's and Target still open, but we are closing down the corner store and we're not allowing to open the small retail shop? It doesn't make any sense. And I thought that wasn't fair. And so. I decided, well, you know, the reason that Walmarts and Targets are still open is because they have lobbying power, right? They can go out and they can Mm -hmm. ask their representatives on their behalf. These little guys can't. So money is the best power often. So anyway, so we started investing in and giving capital to small businesses. I mean, we're not saints. We invest in them to to make an upside too. Um, But it was because I saw this disconnect. Everybody was sort of, you know, focusing on the big guy, all the stocks in them, all the big um, you know, Fortune 500 stocks in the market were cruising, and the little guy was getting crushed. And I was like, "There's an opportunity here to do some good and do well while we're doing it." And that's sort of the two things that I look for in investment thesis.
0: Mm-hmm. So, how exactly did you get into the investment space? I guess I saw you have a little bit of a business background in um, in college, but you got your undergrad in journalism. I got mine in English, so I guess we're kind of somewhere in that stance, but. I was just wondering how you got into the uh, investing space and what that transition was like uh, being a journalist and heading over to investing.
1: Yeah, you know, I well, I started off as a conflict journalist along the U.S.-Mexico border, so writing stories about human trafficking and drug smuggling, really, really deep, dark stories. And, you know, at that point, I realized that what really makes a difference is those who hold the power, not necessarily journalists who can just raise awareness. It doesn't really change much. And so instead of continuing down that path, I thought, well, how do we get into a position of power so that we can actually be the ones making a difference as opposed to the way around? And, um, and what I realized is power usually stems from money, right? It's whoever has sort of the ability to... Influence the outcome economically has has the most power, and so I wanted to understand money. I knew nothing about money. Um, You know, my father came from nothing. His family immigrated immigrated from Spain. Um, My mom's a 30 year special education teacher. I didn't know what a mutual fund was, um, but I realized I wanted to take my journalistic inclination of asking a lot of questions and go into uh, finance and investing. And so I started sort of climbing a bunch of corporate ladders through that um, through that industry. And, uh, and employed a lot of minorities during the time, which was kind of cool. And um, employed a lot of people who had never been in finance before, which was pretty cool. And then finally, you know, come to today where um, you know I I'm an investor, sort of full time, and do a bunch of deals. But I think as a journalist, what you learn is you learn to ask tough questions, you learn to never have ego about assuming answers, and you learn to really go deep um and so i think that is really important for an investor too you get into trouble as an investor when you have too much ego about something and as a uh as a journalist that's tougher to have
0: mm-hmm. i think yeah when you made that point about asking questions that's a that's a big one and always questioning things questioning why this is happening what's happening why is this going on or just even questioning things in the future on how they're going to change totally. but yeah but um so did you work for goldman for a little bit or
1: i did i worked for goldman uh for a couple of years actually during the 2008 financial crisis so that was a wild time to be working that's oh for, for sure
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah. that's crazy i just started a uh like a side business a swag business i uh do a bunch of like promotional stuff and hats and t-shirts and all that for a bunch of companies and ag and started that uh I guess, what was that, the January of 2020, so good time to start that with no events going on, everybody working from home, and oh, so fun yeah. stuff Oh, wow. How's it done yeah, now? It's doing good. It's doing good. We're working with, how uh, we work with quite a few uh, pretty big companies. One of the companies uh, I'm working with now on a lot of stuff, they just, Benson Hill, they just did a SPAC deal for a couple billion bucks, so. They're getting a lot of swag going, and the events are picking up, and we're working with Cargill and CGB and ADM, a lot of the bigger companies, but at the time, I was like, hell, thank God, this is a uh, side gig, not my full-time deal, but one of my buddies does the same thing, and uh, uh, his main client was Southwest Airlines, I was like, whoa. Oh, that's a good one. Talk about getting hit. So, but yeah, they got yes. hit. He, he ended up going out of biz because they just didn't do anything at all because no oh, was flying, yeah. nothing like that. So, oh, no. crazy. But, um,
1: oh man. Yeah.
0: Yeah. But, that's, yeah that's crazy that's tough. time for a lot of and people. It's tough yeah. why
1: you don't want to have, like, concentrated, um, Clients or concentrated income streams. I mean, I'm pretty big on pushing people to have multiple income streams. I think it's awesome that you started the side gig, even if it didn't go exactly perfectly. Because the beautiful part is, if you have a few of them, if one goes down, you know, usually they're not all correlated,
0: and one of
1: them's going up at the mm-hmm. other time.
0: So I think that. Mhm. So I guess yeah. One question I wanted to ask you is at your time at Goldman, what was uh, I guess what was like the best piece of investing advice you took away from the company?
1: I actually think investing is pretty straightforward and easy in a lot of ways. It's just that we oversimplify it, and people on, you know, Wall Street are compensated to basically mean that or make you feel like it's a lot harder <laughs> than it is. Um, mm-hmm. But there's a couple pieces of pieces of advice that I got early. One is um, always invest alongside people who are smarter than you when you're starting out. Uh, If there isn't somebody much smarter than you on the cap table or in the investment deal, uh, that means that you're in trouble. And so I think that's a really good rule to live by. People get into trouble when they're like, no, I got this hot deal and nobody's in on it and it's just for me. Nobody else is in on it. It's not because it's just for you. It's because nobody else wants it. So that was a good piece of advice I got. And then they basically said like four things that I thought were really useful that are very straightforward. Spend less than you earn, invest the surplus, Avoid bad debt, leverage good debt, and so those four things kind of change everything. And they're very simplistic. And by bad debt, they mean avoid, you know, rolling credit card debt. They mean avoid buying a bunch of fancy boats and automobiles and equipment um, that are liabilities, and leverage good yeah. debt because the fastest way to maximize your wealth is to use leverage. It's, it also has risks in it, but you know, if you can use leverage to buy a multifamily unit, if you can use leverage to buy a business with an SBA loan, if you can use leverage to buy multiple properties to Airbnb, or leverage to buy farmland to cash out, all of that allows you to have more income in than you can actually afford to buy right now using other people's money. And so once I understood what good debt looks like, um, I was able to increase my net worth sizably. But it took years for so long. you know, I'm a daughter of immigrants, so they don't like debt. You know, we learned that like debt is, is a killer, um, but they don't mm-hmm. understand the difference between good debt and bad debt. And so for so long, I only, you know, I had zero dollars in debt and I was really proud of it. And I didn't realize, wow, I'm so young and with my current earning, I should absolutely have debt. Um, and I would definitely be wealthier today if I had started that earlier.
0: Yeah, so what were like some of the uh, first good debt things you started investing in along your journey? Let's see. So, well,
1: I think first, um, you know, I started buying properties that weren't the house that I lived in early. So, um, you know, with my brother, I own, you know, an Airbnb, we own a few different properties that we Airbnb on. So I think those are some of the easiest things when you're first starting. Um, Even to house hack, you know, buy your house and rent out the rooms in it, or a lease a house that's more than you typically would and rent out the other rooms in it and then use that cash flow to get enough capital to then buy another house. So Airbnb mm-hmm. was a good one. Um, and I did that the typical real estate way. you know. And then you get into commercial real estate and office space and uh, land and storage units and you can kind of continue to scale up with some ease once you understand the game. Um, but mm-hmm. I think the fastest way to wealth uh, today with leverage is through buying small businesses. It's why we have, if you go to unconventionalacquisitions.com or if you go to contrarianthinking.co, um, on both of the sites we talk a lot about how to buy small businesses using the SBA which is the government's lending program because they'll lend you 90% of the purchase price of a business. So. You can become an owner. You can become a CEO of a business. You can get equity. You can have a real asset that you can sell or pass down as opposed to a job that you cannot. And you can do it with the government's help. And it's one of the most powerful programs. Like all the international people I talk to are like, oh my gosh, like I wish we had this in the UK. I wish we had this in New Zealand. Um, And I don't think nearly enough people take take advantage of it here in the U.S.
0: Mm-hmm. So yeah, expand on that a little bit more on how the government helps you in that way. So that's something I have so, heard of before. Yeah,
1: so what I would say, if you actually are interested in this, go to unconventionalacquisitions.com, sign up for the email list. It's free. Um, you will get, I think, a, like, a weekly email that kind of breaks down how to use SBA financing. But essentially what it is, is, just like you have a mortgage for a house, right? You can get a 30-year mortgage for a house, and you can go to many banks to do that. You can go to Fannie and Freddie May. Um, Fannie Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and you can, through those government entities, get somebody to loan you the capital for your house, right? Um, Mm -hmm. The same program exists for the SBA. So they would go out and if you were going to buy a, let's say you're going to buy an a tractor equipment leasing business, right? Like you own some farmland and now you want to add another business on top of it and you want to lease out equipment to other farmers. Well, you could go on somewhere like Biz buy Sell, which is a marketplace for businesses, and you could find a business that's located in your geography. Say the business costs a million dollars to buy it. Well, you could go to the SBA and if the financials are correct on that business and they agree with the valuation of a $1 million, you can get the SBA to cover $900,000 of it. Um, and you would put down $100,000 or you could get you know, other people to help you uh, invest for that $100,000. And with that business, you know, typically these businesses sell for 2 to 3x their profits. So if you make $100,000 in a business profit, the thing you put in your pocket, then the business is worth two hundred to three hundred thousand. Typically, you can buy them more expensive, you can buy them cheaper, but somewhere right around there. And so, you know, with a with a business that's that's worth a million dollars, you know, that means that you're probably profiting somewhere from, you know, three hundred thirty thousand dollars to five hundred thousand dollars, uh, and you're doing it by only putting down hundred thousand dollars. So that leverage is incredibly powerful.
0: Mm -hmm. So what was was the first business you did this with?
1: The first business I did this with was a plumbing business. Um, And the plumbing business is located in Arizona. Um, And then since then, we've done laundromats. um, We're looking at RV storage right now. We've done podcast production. We've done media. We've done e-commerce businesses. We've done hardware businesses, lots of different types. Um, but what we look for are these sort of like mom and pop traditional businesses where the owner is looking to exit and they, they need help doing that. And so we provide them a liquidity event so they can retire and they provide us with an income stream.
0: Mm-hmm. So, they, so they don't continue running the business. You've got to pick up, I guess you have their clients and whatnot, but you kind of got to be- figure out your own staff.
1: Um, well, so when you buy a business, you buy the actual business. So mm-hmm. that might mean that there's already an operator in place. Um, like you wouldn't buy the business and then have all the people leave, and the business has no value. Yeah. Um okay. So you need to have, you know, when you buy the business, you have lots of different milestones tied to it. Um, but uh, typically, yes, the, the owner of the business is not going to stay on, and either you're going to have to run it or you're going to have to find an operator to do
0: so. Mm-hmm. So do you do you run the business as a start, or do you have um, do you find someone to run them for you? I think Before when you start you doing this you
1: should run the the business first um mm-hmm. because you need to learn sort of the you need to learn how this goes and it's and it's fun it can be an experiment too um So like, there are a lot of people that want to come in and just passively invest in businesses, and a lot of people do. I have a lot of people that run through our course in Mastermind, and they come and run the business entirely passively. I prefer that people run some of the business first, even if it's with an operator. When I first did the businesses, I ran them. Now, today, I don't run any of the businesses, basically, except my media business, Contrarian Thinking, uh, because it's the one I have the most fun with. And all the businesses are run by operators. Um, even unconventional acquisitions, which is another business that I own, my operator there is Ryan Snow, and he's the CEO and runs that business.
0: hmm So how do you? I guess how do you go about? One big topic we always talk about on the podcast is just hiring people, hiring good help. How do you? Yeah. How do you hire? How do you go about hiring good help? I mean, it's a huge. It's it's probably one of the biggest issues in agriculture. It's hard to even find just laborers, but I know in other industries I talk to people and they can't seem to find any good help either. So I guess how do you go about that? And finding someone to where you can take kind of a hands-off approach and not be submerged in the business, Um, telling people what to do, I guess, every day.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I'd be curious too. Um, to hear, So I'll answer, and then I'd love to hear what's happening with the employment um, situation in, in agriculture. I think that's fascinating. Um, so talent is definitely really hard to find. Um, a couple things that I think are um, helpful in the businesses that we run is, well, and first of all, let me say this, it's never easy. Like finding good people who want to work hard for whatever reason is so bizarrely difficult especially when there's so many people that say that they have a need it's like oh my gosh if you guys have a need we have 47,000 jobs for you let's get going Um, Mm -hmm. so it you know it's it's frustrating sometimes um, especially for those of us that you know are super hard workers Um, and but um, a couple things help one like what you're doing right now like with this, I try to give people opportunities in my businesses that aren't just income. What I've realized is not everybody only cares about money. Um, and if you can understand the incentive alignment of why people work for you, um, then you can you can actually have employees for life. So like for instance, um, I don't know if you've ever read the story about um, – Chipotle and how they hire and move people through their business, but they essentially hire you know when, when they start out very like low-level employees that come in and the the difference for Chipotle and why so many people stay with them is they don't hire senior people unless they've worked through their whole entire business so these junior people see that when they come in and yes they're chopping lettuce all day or they're cleaning floors or they're You know, taking orders at the cash register, they have an ability to be an assistant manager and then a manager and then they might have an ability to be a regional manager and then maybe in marketing. Like they can actually work up the chain. Um, Because I don't think that people should stay in minimum wage jobs forever. Those are entry points. And then you're supposed to be able to continue to grow through those varying entry points. And the problem is, I don't think that's happening. Um, and so that's somewhere we really focus on: is can we have? We have a lot of businesses. So how can we have people have roles that will continue to move up so they can see the light at the end of the tunnel? Um, in agriculture, maybe that's hard, and maybe there's only like you know day laborers that you need. But if you find like a great day laborer, the best thing that you can do is create an example of them. Like, you know, uh, my family's from Arizona and. And my grandparents, grandparents picked cotton, and um, and my uncle Eb, actually, who ran, you know, one day a very large plumbing company, he he was a sharecropper, and um, and what he did and what my family did is they would they would pick out like some of the best talent, and you, the, there usually wasn't a ton of them, maybe like you know the top one percent or the top three percent, and they would move those people up the ladder, and because those people would see that they would stay with them, they would have loyalty. Um, and they would bring on more people underneath them, and then the second thing I think is you know trying to show people that like a little bit of a dream that 's bigger than them, so like for instance, in my business, you know I have a lot of roles that are uh, really operational, like you need to you know schedule people here and you need to um, you know do administrative tasks there and I tell those people the same thing like we make every single person do a personality test so I can understand what drives mm-hmm. them before we, um, before we hire them. And then I make sure that they do not get in a job that's not aligned with how we would actually hire them. And I do this for the lowest employee, employee all the way to the most, you know, let's say, expensive or salaried employee I have. Um, and mm-hmm. it's been really helpful um, because some people also just want freedom. And some people want safety and security. So I might say to like another person that's like a lower level, like, you know, if you if your biggest thing is that you want to make sure that you have a job continuously, then what I'll do for you is I'll make sure that, you know, you're number one on my priority list for all the jobs that I have, and I will connect you with somebody else that will fill the gaps when I don't have jobs for you. Um, and so like I'm actually looking out for you and And I don't think other employees or or employers are going to do that, but there's no doubt it's hard and it's very time intensive up front
0: mm-hmm. yeah, it seems like it' the uh, i guess the training part of the the uh the aspect the aspect of training people seems to be the biggest issue i guess, and what I'm seeing in ag and people just taking the time to train someone and I was on a podcast with a guy the other day, and he scaled a uh ag retail business he his uh his dad actually died his dad had a seed seed business when he was in college and his dad died his senior year he decided uh hell i'm going to take over the seed business and see what i can do with it and i think he i know he runs the biggest ag retail shop in iowa and Iowa's the biggest farm state and um the country and i think he might have the biggest independent ag retailer in the uh in the u.s but yeah, he was just basically saying you got to spend nine months to 12 months training somebody and don't really expect much out of them and have them learn the business and shadow you and um, figure it out from there. So, But, yeah, the stuff wow. on the uh, – the, uh, yeah, the labor on the ag side of things isn't the best right now. I mean, the first problem is um, just getting people. I mean, all these – Farm communities are in super small towns in the middle of nowhere. So getting people to move out there is a huge issue. I mean, a lot of farms now are seeing the issue with uh, their kids not even wanting to stay on the farm. They just don't really want anything to do with it. And I think social media has had a big play in that. Um, Just letting people see the world and what's going on in the world. I mean, some of my best friends here in Kansas City, uh, grew up on farms in western kansas and they don't have any plans of going back to the farm anytime soon or at all i mean it's just a different lifestyle and getting those people out there is the. i mean finding help is obviously hard and, and getting people to move to that city i guess is harder and we have a we do a conference every year uh farm and tagline surviving little america and it's just crazy we go out and speak across the drive-through small towns speaking small towns for all these farm communities it's crazy to see what like the 08 crash has done to all these towns I mean just just decimated how poor they are yeah the business no businesses left people strung out on drugs and it's just it's crazy and the biggest I I mean we sit down with uh, some of the top execs from Everyone from Nutrient to ADM to bungee huge companies and mm-hmm. the biggest question always is how do we revive rural America? I mean that's 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 I guess the name of the, the game is? right now. You know, we're we're still talking about it now, but there's a uh, there's a guy called uh his name's Galen Lawrence and he I believe he started out him and his dad did uh heating an A C out in California. They had a business doing that. And then he, uh, sold that off and got into agriculture. And at one time he was the biggest landowner in the U S he owns a bunch of like citrus farms down in Florida and whatnot. But he went into a uh, town. I can't think of the name. He went into a town outside of Memphis. Um, and he just redid the whole town. Like, they got, it's like its own little community. And I just wrote a thing wow. up in my newsletter the other day about all these people starting these, they're called agri-hoods. So people are going into all these, uh, development areas saying, buying 500 acres and they build their own little like town square. They got all the houses around them and then they leave like 250 of the acres for, uh, crops they have to grow some type of crops and they uh live off those crops and kind of become a community around it but they're not too big right now but i guess they're like blowing up um and the houses are going for like crazy money um i saw some around like cal or carolina's like the starting price at some of the houses for like 1.2 million so wow that's maybe one idea around it but I'm not sure. I mean, I guess if I knew, I'd be out there doing it, but... (laughs) Yeah, um, Um.
1: 100%. Yeah, you know, I remember reading... We're part of this group called AEI, which is kind of like a free markets and um, like, you know, America-focused think tank, and... um, And um, do you remember that book by, what was his name? It was like J.D. something. And he wrote about like rural Appalachia where he grew up and sort of what's happening Mm -hmm. there with the drug and opioid epidemic. Um, Mm -hmm. Anyway, it's an interesting book. But, you know, and their thesis is that, you know, a lot of it is due to um, sort of families breaking down, obviously. Um, Like no, you know, fewer jobs that are located in those regions and less training and, um, and sort of there's like a little bit of like of a mild depression in the region because of, of moving out of resources and top talent. So that makes mm-hmm. a lot of sense to me. I mean, what will be interesting is I wonder if like any, you know, the fact that so many city folk are like leaving these large, you know, New York and L.A. and San Francisco and whatever and going more rural I wonder what impact that will have on the local economy because it seems to me there's a ton of opportunity. Like we're based in, we split time kind of between San Diego and Austin and it's wild in Austin now you can't get services. Like if I want to get my lawn done, it's super hard to find somebody. Um, and uh, and because there's all these people moving in, I wonder mm-hmm. if there's, you know, more businesses and services to help that way. But I guess the problem is, like you said, training and like, how would people even think about doing these things? There needs to be like a yeah. bridge, right? In the
0: in the training, even too, in these rural these rural communities is crazy because, I mean, I bet over seventy five percent. I mean, the operations run by the oldest generation in the family, and I mean, gosh dang, we've had so many stories, and it's sad. But like, if I if I were, I guess majority of the landowners and farmers if i was i'm 25 and if i was working on the farm i wouldn't know i wouldn't know anything about running the business itself i guess if my family owned the farm oh, yeah. owned the land and whatnot my dad would maybe know, know a little bit and uh my grandpa would know the most and hell my dad's 50 years old and say the grandpa something crazy happens and he ends up passing away real quick um the 50-year-old dad has no idea the first thing about it, even what to do. And I think that's where it starts. And they just have a tough time delegating. And um, There's a lot of change happening in agriculture right now. I mean, it's probably the last industry to get any change. I mean, the motto today is, I mean, they haven't, I guess they really haven't had a change since their forefathers had enough balls to head west and, put a stake in the ground and take the ground. I mean, ever since then it's this is how my daddy did it and his daddy wow. did it and his daddy did it before him. So um, Yeah. I guess.
1: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. We were just in Greenville, South Carolina, which isn't super rural, right? But we were there with a few families that um, manage cattle. And um Yeah, it it seems like there's such a disconnect. I was just on the phone with this guy, Andrew Wilkinson, who runs something called Tiny Capital, and we were talking about how hard it is to find people. And then I'm in Greenfield, and there's like these young crazy kids who are roping steers, and you know, got kicked in the face, and they they show up to do it at five in the morning and do all this work just to have somebody let them, you know. And so it's like, gosh, like if we could harness that crazy drive. It gets a 60 I wasn't up at 5 a.m. when I was 16 just for fun like no way mm-hmm. um, yeah. I think if we could harness some of that to you know business and treat those kids um, you know like in the education that would actually be useful as opposed to sending them to college wow would we have something you know
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, but but I think that's in stark contrast to you know then I see those kids once they turn 40 or 50 and life isn't always so good to them over the years and some of that light you know stopped shining um mm-hmm. and and yeah i can i can only imagine where are you based exactly are you in Kansas City proper
0: yeah i'm right i'm right in Kansas City my parents live a little bit south on the farm and then uh we own uh we got airbnbs too we got uh six airbnbs and i uh, i guess right out of college I graduated college. What was that? Three year about three years ago. Right now, mm-hmm. and right out of college, my uh, my grandpa died right before I graduated. And he was uh, we call him the slum lord. He was the big slum lord. So he <laughs> he he had some interesting houses down in downtown KC, and uh, he kind of sold all those off before he died. But he had one property, uh, one property left. Um, in a bigger town right outside of Kansas City. It was uh, six commercial units, business units, and my grandma was, like, super stressed out about it and uh, didn't, um, I guess, didn't want to deal with them at all. And she had them listed at a good price, and no one was buying or biting on them, and this investment company came in and low her, like, big time. And she was going to take it. And I'm like, hell, I mean, for that price, I'll buy it from you. I mean, I'll figure out how to get the money. So yeah. I ended up buying those from her. And then uh, they were super run down. And, I mean, you could tell just no one could take care of them because my grandpa was sick like over a year and he wasn't messing with them. So I went in and redid them and put them on the market and uh, ended up flipping them for a good profit right before um, – covid hit thank god and i rolled it into a uh fire station so i live in uh i'm living upstairs now but i'm living in the oldest fire station in kansas city um it was built like 1887 yep and i'm working on the downstairs now i'm gonna airbnb it or rent it out to somebody so um
1: that's
0: interesting
1: That's like my husband's dream is he wants to live in a fire
0: station. He thinks that's so cool. Yeah, uh, it's pretty so we're cool. We're going to have to, we're gonna no have to come calls.
1: visit you in Kansas City.
0: Yep, yep. i got a big back deck and garage, and it's a pretty cool place. So, um, yeah, when you come into KC, let me know, and we got places all over the place. We actually have the uh, one of our other properties, my parents. I guess they bought it in, what was that, right, my freshman year of college. They bought the fifth oldest house in Kansas City. A uh Wow. I guess the general of like the one of the generals of the Civil War. They gave him a bunch of land in Kansas City. And uh there's a bunch of houses around us, but the one that we have, his tailor lived in. He built him a big house that his tailor lived in. So we got an event space in there now and three Airbnb units. So it's going really well.
1: Interesting. That's fascinating. But is most of what you do in your in your family agriculture, or now is it agriculture? Because what I think is cool is, like, when I buy a business, I like to build a platform around it, which is what you've done. So you have, like, mm-hmm. what I would assume is agriculture and farmlands, and then you provide swag, and then you have the conference, and then you have the newsletter, and then you have you know the yeah. media platform. So, um, is that kind of how so that works?
0: It, yeah, so it started, I guess, my, my dad did stuff for the NFL. He worked with, like, Emmett Smith and all that and my mom got her so-called dream job in chicago working for eddie bauer she was going to be the manager um so they they thought it was a bunch of money because they're just from small town here in peculiar missouri and it sounded like a bunch of money at the time but once they moved up there they realized it wasn't a whole lot of money to get them very far in chicago so my dad was figuring out how to work and trying to find a job, bouncing around, and he ended up getting a job at the Chicago Board of Trade, uh, trading commodities. So he worked there forever, and then uh, we finally moved back home, and he started this newsletter. It's called uh, the Van Trump Report, and uh, it's basically just a forward-looking newsletter in agriculture, and uh, it's a paid newsletter. People pay for it, and we got thousands of thousands of subscribers. I think we're in 40 countries now, and then he started a, uh, he didn't really even start the show, he started it as like a get-together for him and his friends to talk about investments and what they saw coming forward for uh, the next year, it really didn't have a name, and more and more people kept coming, and it's eventually turned into FarmCon, and uh, we sell out every year, and we got, uh, I think, 1,200 people come every year, so big sponsors, and I guess it's turned into something. Are you going
1: to do it this year again?
0: Uh, yeah, we we're supposed to do it last year. We're doing it this year. So, um, uh, I think we've sold over 500 tickets so far. It's in January here in Kansas City, January 5th and 6th. And then since I've come on board, um, he so he had this he he's kind of started this farm tank deal with his buddies, and it's a spinoff of Shark Tank, but they were going to do something similar to Shark Tank with ag tech startups and stuff like that. They never really did anything, yeah. so he's like, yeah, here, here's this farm tank thing. you got a yeah. podcast next week. Figure it out. I went, like, podcast? What are you talking about, Ed? So he just kind of threw me in the ring, and I started doing these podcasts, but it's served as a great way to uh, meet and learn people, and I've kind of developed it into this uh, newsletter now, and I've launched the Ag Swag business, and we have a uh another business called Van Trump Farms, where basically we help ag tech startups emerge into or i guess we call it get through the farm gate, so a lot of people have a tough time getting through the farm gate just because of these farmers have built such high fences and trust and they're leery about trying new things, so we've gotten into everything from selling chemicals for people and selling non-GMO seed, and we're helping people sell pivots and just helping newer technology get on the farm that's good for the farm, that we think good for the farm, and people should try. So that's kind of a newer venture, and we're trying to uh, get more into some nationwide land real estate now, and I guess buying it and selling it and stuff like that, so.
1: Fascinating. Well, I definitely want to follow up on all of this on your side because I think there's lots of stuff we should cover for contrarian thinking. i like to talk about different ways that, like, normal humans like me and you can cash flow. I think so mm-hmm. much of our like society today, everybody wants to build the next Facebook or Tesla or whatever, and like that's really probably not very reasonable for at least me. You know, I couldn't do that. Oh, um, yeah. And so, <laughs> you know, but there's so many ways to actually create financial freedom without doing any of that with doing exactly Mm -hmm. what you're talking about, leveraging sort of the unique opportunities in front of you and believing that you can actually do it. Like I love to see the landscaper guy that we ended up hiring here was just one of the guys on a job and his boss like couldn't get to our job for like six months. And, uh, and so I, I asked this guy, I'm like, you seem super confident. Like, why don't you run a group of guys and do this? And, uh, and he did, and now he has his own company, and and he's growing it. And he let his former boss invest in his company, so he didn't just leave him hanging. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I think so many more people can do that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's crazy, but yeah, I, th- I thought it was interesting. You even said just on this podcast on some of that cash flow, like you said, buying smaller equipment places and stuff like that. And how a lot of these farmers are. A lot of people outside of ag don't know it but a lot of these farmers and producers are super entrepreneurial mindsetted and gosh thing they got their hands in anything possible almost too much i mean they got their stuff and more than me and flipping tractors and selling seeds and they own trailer parks and gas stations and <laughs> yeah well, but they're crazy you know.
1: too. because you know i, I would imagine that you know, agriculture could be volatile. So, oh, yeah. you know, again, if you had these other things, then if you lose a crop or you have a problem, you know, with prices, you know, commodity prices going wild, then at least you have the consistent, you know, trailer park revenue that's probably not changing too much, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's super volatile business. I mean, price dictates everything um, else. Like a normal pretty-sized farmer right now, I mean, the, the volatility we're seeing now, I mean, they're seeing two hundred thousand dollar swings in a day just on their farm i mean wow up in one direction or down in one direction i mean we were talking to some people not too long ago and we were helping them with some wheat sales and uh the guy i guess they were working with forgot to put the sale in and we were trading a dollar lower and we figured out they lost one hundred fifty thousand dollars on that deal just because the guy forgot to put it in so i mean the amount of i guess would and leverage their swingings pretty crazy that a lot of people don't really understand. So, I mean, a lot, I mean, for I mean, right now prices are prices have been getting hit lately, but they've been super high um, this year. But I mean, a lot of farmers just fight to break even many years. It's crazy. Just um, how much these prices yeah. affect their business and how it doesn't cash flow like a lot of other businesses you would think of. So, yeah, that's the tough part, right?
1: Fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I, I I love it. I think uh, there's so much I want to learn about the agricultural space, but I I typically like to not invest in things that I don't understand unless I have an operator that runs them. So
0: I decided yeah, yeah. not you'll to buy any our uh, Yeah, you'll have to come to our FarmCon show. I mean, I think it's a good point for, yeah. for a lot of people. Um, meet a lot of great people. I mean, we got CEOs of the biggest businesses there and hedge fund managers, and hell, you'll have a guy sitting in a suit, and then right next to him's a guy sitting in bib overalls. <laughs> it's pretty crazy, so, um, yeah, pretty Gosh, interesting event. Wild. Yeah, you'll have to come. Uh, a lot of people, we, I know a lot of my real estate friends that aren't really interested in ag, and we got some people that don't deal with ag at all and end up coming to the show, and they're knee-deep in it by the time they leave, so they're just super interested in what's going on in the space, so... Yeah, I think Definitely it's probably just out. good to know. We are I think we all Sam. wanna like you know own Sam a little Parr, farm somewhere. He? Yeah, we do. You know Sam Parr? I do. Yeah, yeah, he was supposed to come out uh to our show last year. I'll have to get him to come out this year, but uh he was supposed to head out and check it all out. So we met him at a. Uh, he's I guess he's just right here in Saint from right here in Saint Louis, but we met him at a conference in uh Phoenix. It's called PickleCon. I don't know if you know those guys over at Design Pickle or I don't. Uh, not. Uh, I can't think of the guy's name that owns it. But um, we met him there. He was talking, and he kind of just approached us. And he was like, "Yeah, you guys aren't from around here, are you?" We're like, "No, we're from Kansas City." So <laughs> we kind of just hit it off from there. And I was just down in Austin uh, a couple months ago and went by his new house. And we hit a workout and. He got some new crazy Mercedes-Benz or something, some station wagon thing. Yeah. It's pretty crazy. So. I'm seeing
1: him on Friday. Yeah. He's like, there's only 65 made in the world. I'm like, Sam, it's a station wagon. That's what moms exactly. drive.
0: I don't care. If exactly. <laughs> there's only two made in the world. But he's funny. He's a good sport. He's like, yeah, forget you. Oh, I yeah. like it. <laughs> yeah, my dad, my dad, him and my dad really hit it off. He worked with uh, Mike at American Pickers for a while and – um my dad's obsessed with antiques, and I think he's watched every episode of that show, so <laughs> no
1: they hit it off that's there. hysterical. What a good, yeah, that's a good quirk. I always like people that are, you know, I think the fun part about life is when you get to meet humans that are multidimensional, you know, they do lots of different interesting things because life's too short, mm-hmm. you know, but I grew up in, in Phoenix, Arizona, where, you know, I didn't realize it then, but now when I tell stories of, like, you know, going hunting with my dad and the stuff that we did as kids, people think it's a little crazy. Um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: And that's just how we grew up. You know, all, lots of our friends were farm families or, you know, a lot with a lot with cattle uh, in Arizona, too. And then that got leveraged into real estate for most of them. Um, mm-hmm. but, uh, but there's nothing that I think is better than finding humans that have, you know, done some hard things with their hands to start. Um, just makes for more interesting conversations than uh, only doing things with computers. And Sam's from the Midwest too, right?
0: Yeah, he's from St. Louis area. So he, he well yeah. he, I guess he got started in that uh He's nuts, but he was doing those hot dogs or whatever. He was selling them hot dogs. I guess <laughs> is it is. Exactly I guess with the same, ridiculous I guess. name he sold that, cart Yeah, he sold that sold that hot dog business and I guess he's taken off from there but he's got the podcast deal going on now and looks like it's doing well so who knows what he'll be into next yeah yeah he's killing it no doubt about it Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) one other yeah one question I wanted to ask you I guess I know we're probably running out of time but uh so basically I asked my dad um I was going to be a baseball player and I had some big offers for baseball and decided I was gonna to go to school to be a lawyer instead, so I ended up getting into law school and right before I was going, I was like, Dad, what what would you do if, if you had to do it all again? And he's like, uh I'd be a I'd be just be an investor, professional investor. So um I decided not to go to law school and I guess kinda of take that journey. But kinda of seems like what you're doing now, so I was just wondering if you had to do it all again, what would, uh, I guess, be some of your first steps you'd take and get you on the right path of that journey?
1: Yeah, you know, I think, well, one, if I had to do it all again, I would start investing by myself earlier. Like I, I you know, it really took me a long time to do that. I just put things in mutual funds. I didn't understand the private deals at all. You know, now it sounds like you do. I, I, like I would optimize for cash flow so much more than I did. I spent a lot of money that I wasted on angel investing and like project, like basically funding other people's dreams. And um, mm-hmm. and I wouldn't do that again. I would focus on real businesses that are straightforward, that are already cash flowing. And um, and it sounds like that's exactly what you're doing. And I would just get. That's why I started contrarian thinking. It's an excuse for me every single month. I go and I go really deep into somebody's business. So it's like, okay, like if I was to do yours, I could be like, how do you really buy farmland? And like, what is it? And if I was going to go do it, what are all the things I need to to know? And then usually I take that learning and I invest (laughs) into something in the space. So I end up getting this diversified portfolio of a bunch of different investments by going really deep into one a month. Um, and learning mm-hmm. from an expert, and then, you know, and then they get exposure and stuff from that. And so I think that's it's exactly what you're doing. Is like, I would just reach out to the different people that you think do interesting things, seem to make quite a bit of wealth um, from what they're, they're building or what they're investing in. And then I'm usually like, can you just teach me how to do it, and I'll write something up for you, you know, or I'll help, or give me work, or whatever. I, I have no ego about it even now. Um, and then I go deep, really deep down the rabbit hole on it. And mm-hmm. uh, and I think, you know, that's the best advice that um, that I ever had was one of my mentors said, like, you know, if you're investing millions and billions for other people, like, why aren't you doing that for yourself? And then the second best piece was, like, don't try to learn it by yourself. Just go, go chat with somebody who's done it before you. Um, and so I try to, like you know, my friend Mike Dillard, we just did one on crypto. And he taught me a ton about how to invest in crypto, how to do it in the wallets, and I just basically took all of his ideas and implemented it. Um, mm-hmm. And then another friend did that for me with buying houses at auction. So we're going to go on July 15th, there's an auction here, and, and I'm going to buy a property with him. Um, and, uh, and if I take all these little bets, they sort of accumulate. And then the one – I really like that work out well I double down on and I do more than the ones that don't work out I usually always learn something from so um mm-hmm. that's how I do it but we'll come harass you in Kansas City and we can compare notes you can teach me about farming and we can film <laughs> some cool stuff and you can show me your Airbnbs and I'll teach you about all the other classes yeah, sure. I invest in
0: yeah for sure you jogged my memory on one thing uh and uh it was uh, I read an article and you were talking about uh Collecting people. Um, I guess I was just wanting to learn a little bit more about that and how you go about that. And you were just talking about how you're uh, connecting with people in your network, and they're showing you how to do things, and you're actually putting them. I guess you're executing on what they're telling you and making money from it. So.
1: Yeah, yeah. That's. I think that somebody said that to me last night. Like, what I'm. You know, you got to know your skill set. And my skill set is not staying focused on one area for 20 years. You know, as you can tell from my career, I don't really like to do that. I like to get in, understand something, get competent at it. And right when you could actually start compounding and continuing to get more value out of it, I'm like, ah, I'm over this. I'm ready for the next thing. And so I realized mm-hmm. early on that meant that I wouldn't be able to just be employed. Because how you make a lot of money that way is you stay in one area for 20 years or 10 years or whatever, and you keep climbing the ladder in that area, Right. And I realized hmm. that had no interest or appeal for me. So what I did instead is said, okay, so that's not going to work for me. But what I could do is I could go invest uh, in each of these areas that I find, and I could put my money down. And my money will continue to do the work for me because it doesn't get bored. It keeps doing what I tell it to do no matter what. And... uh And I will just use the skills from being a journalist that have served me thus far, which is get really curious about people. Like when we meet, like, and even now, hopefully you felt like, I actually want to know you. I'm like, oh, that's cool. Mm -hmm. How are you doing that? What? Tell me about you. What's it like? So, and maybe that's rare. Not everybody actually wants to know another person. They want to talk about themselves. I don't care that much about myself. I already already know Cody. She's okay. Um, Mm -hmm. And so... uh, so instead, I try to go out and find really interesting humans, and I build my friend and networks from humans that I think are interesting, as opposed to those that have just, you know, stumbled on my path through the years. So I do it really, really proactively, um, and because of that, we get really cool deals that we get to do, and we get to have incredible experiences. And my husband's very similar. You know, he's an Navy SEAL, so everybody thinks that's cool. Uh, so they want to hang out with him, uh, and it all just is this virtuous cycle. And so, um, you know, it sounds like you do the same thing, even by going and hanging with Sam and, um, you know, meeting these other people in your in your network. I think cool people are attracted to people that are doing cool shit. And if you're doing cool shit, mm-hmm. um, you know, you're just going to attract more of that.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it definitely makes sense. So, Doesn't yeah, I think, think that definitely... Yeah, and that definitely helps, I think, some of our listeners, especially in these small towns. I mean, it's just their network's small, and they have very small – not to their advantage. I mean, our, an excuse for them, they just have way less opportunity than me and you being around in these bigger cities and just help. I mean, we're eating dinner, and we're meeting people left and right, it seems like, so um, I guess yeah, this is how that's it goes. that's very true. Yeah, Yeah. well, uh, go ahead.
1: Nope, I was just going to say, I think the only thing I would say to that is like people should get on Twitter and like create, you know, start just like getting on Twitter and writing about what you do on a daily basis and like what you learn and what your unique skill set is, whatever that may be. Um, Because I find that Twitter like has so many interesting humans that will actually engage with you. And so you Mm -hmm. don't have to be in a big city. You can just start a Twitter account and your Twitter account might be like, I work in agriculture, and here's what I'm learning. Holy crap, today the price of commodities flipped you know two hundred percent for corn, like tomorrow mm-hmm. it might be you know we have five hundred jobs available and fifty people to fill them. You know people are yeah. just interested in others' lives when they sort of niche down and share them, so that's what I would be doing
0: Mhm, yeah, and there there is a ag community, I guess, on Twitter, but it's so small, I bet I could name everybody in that community to right now so i mean it's i'd say like actively like it's probably under 100 people so nothing like the world of finance or anything like that
1: i mean i ran yeah, across one 100%. guy today
0: um i don't remember what his name was but he just had some really interesting comparisons and stuff out there that just a different way of looking at things so um gave him follow so um but yeah before we wrap things up uh, i got one more question for you. I'd just love for you to uh, tell our listeners one piece of advice or life lesson that's had the most impact on Cody Sanchez.
1: Oh, um, that's a good question. I, I think it would be um, learning really early that, you know, we're kind of hard to kill as humans. And so all this stuff that we obsess about every day, like, I don't know, you know, I didn't get the job I wanted, or um, you know, I am not making as much money as I want to make, or I can't find employees. Like we're not going to die. You know, it's it's pretty rare that we as humans, from things that we stress out daily, are actually going to die, except if we stress ourselves to death. And I think for me, hunting at an early age and doing more extreme sports and hanging out with my dad and seeing what it's like to take a life. Like I realized that, and so I'm sure a lot of people on this podcast realize that too. But when I was able to translate it to business, it was like, hey, all these people, like, they haven't actually gone out and taken a life. They haven't actually felt what it's felt like, you know, felt like to do a really hard physical thing. So if they can like toy around with computers on the internet, um, like I can figure that out. And I think realizing that early changed the game for me. It made me stress less and realize, you know, we're all tougher than we think and much more capable than we think.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, the human mind is a crazy powerful tool and a lot of people. I mean, literally, anything you – once you actually put your mind to something and do it and realize, like, at the beginning that was so hard you didn't think you could do it, I mean, there's not a thing – out there I don't think I can do. It's just a matter of forming a plan and going out and doing it and executing on it. I mean, that's that's as simple as it is, it just comes down to executing and making it happen. Just not just making the time out of the day to do it. And uh I guess I read a quote not too long ago. Uh I, I had it written on my wall for a little bit, but it was uh if you don't have time for it then make it a priority. Um Yeah, that's exactly right. And, hell, I guess ever since I've read that quote, it's anything that I feel like I need to do, I just got to make it a priority and do it. and There it is. I usually get it done. So um, um, you're yep, down in Austin, exactly right? Exactly
1: right. Yes, sir.
0: Okay. So, yeah, I come down there all the time. I love Austin. And um, I'm trying to get tickets to uh, ACL. That damn thing sold out in, like, 30 minutes on me. And I zoned oh, out. Oh, yeah yeah uh, well, yeah they got George Strait down come down there. here, yeah, yeah. I come down there all the time. I got a lot of buddies in Dallas and a few buddies in Austin, and my sister loves Austin. She's up at New York right now. she just got into uh Columbia, so she's going to Columbia for a uh, graduate school in architecture and kind of the stories well, and different Good for her. perspectives, yeah yeah, different perspectives we're hearing from her is pretty crazy, and I go to uh Vegas over to the fourth and I'm going up there for a week, so that'll be fun. But um yeah, Perfect. I just uh, well keep
1: me updated if you come down, I'll tell you about Kansas City and I'm so glad we had a chance to chat. So fun.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I appreciate you doing this and taking the time and uh I guess uh till next time I'm sure we'll talk again.
1: That sounds like a plan, my friend. Talk to you soon. Bye Jordan.
0: Yeah. See ya.
1: Bye.